a blessing to be with you this morning as we open up God's Word together. We're going to be in the uh, book of Philippians, and we'll be focusing today on verses 18 to 20. It's a fairly simple question we're going to start with. Where do you find joy in the midst of hardship? Now, I know we know lots of good answers to this, right? In the midst of hardship, well, we pray, and we think about the gospel, and I know, and I'm thankful for that. That's exciting. I'm glad. But it's also tempting to look for joy in other places too, right? You know, as maybe you're driving home from a long day at work or a long week at work, you're a little discouraged, a little, a little depressed maybe. Maybe that depression's been going on for longer. And you start thinking, well, wh- where am I going to find some joy? Maybe for you it is the weekend, finally making it to that day off. Maybe it is the vacation that you've got planned this summer. You, you've, you've been thinking about it, even meditating on it a little bit, chewing it over as you look forward to how amazing it's going to be with your family until you're with your... No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Uh, <laughs> we're not, we're not going to put on the tape who just laughed. So... Uh, <laughs> You're just looking forward to rest. Or maybe in the midst of your discouragement and lack of joy, you're looking forward to pleasure, what you're going to eat for dinner, how great that warm slice of pizza is going to be when that cheese is just all melty and you sink your teeth into it and the sauce is a little sweet and you're starting to feel a little bit better. Maybe spending some time with friends or, you know, there's, there's all kinds of fun summer movies and you're anxiously waiting for when you're going to get to see the new Spider-Man movie. And you, we put our happiness and our joy in these kinds of things. Or maybe you are a, a more a, a disciplined person. And it's not so much pizza and movies, not that that's me, but that uh, uh, it's like completing the next improvement project at home or doing a new craft or you've got a, a fitness goal you're looking towards. And, and I don't mean to seem shallow in talking about these kinds of things, as we know that those aren't the places where we find true and lasting joy. But in the midst of hardship, it becomes very easy to look at those kinds of places for comfort. We, are, we know that there's blessings to be enjoyed, but that's not where comfort is to be found. Now, as we look at reasons to rejoice, the Bible gives many answers of where we should find joy in the midst of hardship. And we're not going to try to be exhaustive this morning. We're, we could add many biblical answers that, uh, that aren't in this passage. We could spend lots of time talking about it. that. That's a great thing to talk about afterwards. But we are going to look at Paul's testimony from Philippians 1. He's a man who's wrongfully imprisoned, and he's writing to a church that's wrongfully persecuted. The Philippians were definitely in a hard place, and they were definitely in a place where they'd be looking for joy. It was a church that was about 10 years old. Philippi had really, since the beginning of the church being planted there by Paul, had been a place where the Christians were suffering for confessing Christ. But now in Philippi, hardship wasn't only found outside the walls of the church, but inside the church too, as they were struggling with one another and struggling with unity with one another. 
The, in fact, there was no escaping difficulty. The church that had be, once been a solace had become a source of heartache to some. Now, we know that Paul, being in prison, was obviously going through hardship too. Imprisoned and waiting, trial before uh, semi-crazy Emperor Nero, continually getting crazy as time goes. He's been in prison, ultimately, at least a, 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 a couple years. We don't know what point in that time, in that imprisonment, he writes this letter here. We also came to that really strange section last week, and I'll read it again in a minute, that while he's in prison, his brothers in Christ are trying to make things worse for him by proclaiming Christ. So it, it describes their envy and, and, and strife and their selfish ambition. So what a strange turn. His own brothers in Christ, people he's with in heaven right now, trying to stir up trouble for him by proclaiming Christ. This is the kind of stuff that, that Paul was going through while awaiting trial and finding out whether he's going to be killed or not. So it's really useful to think of what Paul is intentionally saying and the reasons why he rejoices as he writes to this church that is going through a time where they're struggling to rejoice too. Joy is a huge theme in, 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 in the book of uh, Philippians. Later in uh, Philippians 4.4, 4, uh, Paul's going to command them, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is not the last thing he says about, about rejoicing. But it is really interesting what he says he is rejoicing in. And so today we're going to answer the question, where can we find joy in the midst of hardship? And it's not the only answer that God's word has. Really, you can exhaust scripture finding answers to that question. But it is true, and it is intentionally recorded by Paul. And I think that we're going to be blessed and challenged with it this morning. So I'm, I'm going to read... Uh, uh, Philippians 1, verses 12 through 26. So if you haven't already opened your Bibles, go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians 1, verses 12 through 26. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, referring to being in prison and waiting trial and everything that, that led up to him being in prison, which was years of prison before prison, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole whole Praetorian Guard, about 9,000 soldiers, and, and, to, and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. In these verses, Paul speaks of the joy that he has while in prison. Later in, in, in chapter 4, and we could go ahead and turn now, Paul speaks of his contentment during prison. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. 
Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances, circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So here we have Paul speaking of his joy, speaking of his contentment while in prison. Now, we know that the church in, in, in Philippi is going to be thrilled to hear how Paul is doing. They are waiting waiting expectantly for this letter back. They're waiting word for how his trial has gone. Has it gone trial yet? Is, is, is Paul going to be on death row? So this is good news for them. Yes, Paul is still rejoicing. It's probably really what they expected of Paul as they have ministered alongside him, partnered with him in gospel ministry over the, over the years. But this letter is more than just informing them of how things are going. Paul intends that he and his joy be an example for them in the midst of their hardship. And I read these, these verses last week, and I, and I think that, they're, that they're, they're really useful. Because it can be easy, I think, sometimes to say, well, you know, Paul, he was such an amazing apostle. He was, he was blessed by God. He was an apostle. We're, we're not apostles. We're, we're disciples. So it's easy, I think, to distance ourselves from Paul and saying, well, that was Paul's ministry. He was, he was specially called. And we kind of make excuses for not being like Paul because he had the special calling. But listen to what Paul says. And I read these verses Last week, I think they're really good for us to look at. Philippians 3, verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. We are to follow Paul's example. Philippians 4, verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And surely that includes his example of what he was rejoicing in in the midst of hardship. So we're going to answer two questions this morning. The first is, where can you find joy in hardship? Where can you find joy in hardship? The second answer is really going to explain one of these first two answers we're going to look at. You'll see that as we get there. First question, though, is where can you find joy in hardship? And we can find joy in hardship as we rejoice in the proclamation of Christ. And that's the first answer of where we find joy in hardship. We rejoice in the proclamation of Christ. We see that in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So we can rejoice in the proclamation of Christ. Now, we saw last week, and I just read again, verses 14 to 17, that the proclamation of Christ in Rome wasn't limited to Paul. Yes, because of his ministry there while he was in prison, the good news the good news about Christ spread throughout the whole, the whole Praetorian Guard through those 9,000 enlightened soldiers of Nero. But that as people saw the impact that Paul was having as the news of this gospel minister in prison spread, they get motivated. And it says that the majority of the Christians, uh, and I don't know if they took to the streets in public preaching, if they just got really bold talking to their neighbors, uh, but they had far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, they had mixed motives in doing this. Some are like, wow, 
Paul's advancing the gospel, if Paul's advancing the gospel, we can definitely do it because they weren't necessarily aligning with Paul in every area. But others were like, wow, our brother Paul's in prison. He can't be out there in Rome right now. We got to take to the streets and we got to share the gospel. We got to pick up the slack because Paul can't. But Paul says, regardless of what motive people had for doing it, like this is incredible. And we were challenged with this last week, looking at multiple motives for proclaiming Christ. Now, it's clear that they had the gospel clear. Uh, I think it'd be difficult to say, well, people are actively seeking to stir up trouble for me. So I'm going to rejoice that they're proclaiming via gospel. I think we could struggle with, 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 with that a little. But not Paul. He says, what then? What does it matter? What is it to me? It doesn't matter. What matters is that Christ is proclaimed. It doesn't matter how I'm viewed. It doesn't matter how I'm treated. What matters is that Christ is is proclaimed. Of course, this isn't any version of Christ. This is the true Christ of the Bible. This is not someone's imagination about Christ. This is not someone's impressions about Christ. This is the true Christ revealed in God's word. This is God the Son become man. This is Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. This is the only sacrifice sinners will ever need. This is the only one who can save. This is the resurrected Lord who will return to reward and rule. This is the Christ that was being proclaimed. And because of that, Paul rejoices. And I hope you rejoice even as I just proclaimed Christ. And I've been thinking about this. Every time we hear the gospel, we should rejoice. In our hearts, we should say, yes, I'm still hoping in that. I still believe in that truth. I'm clinging to that. So whether we sing it in song or we hear it preach on the radio or we're saying it to our kids, we overhear our spouse sharing the gospel, let's rejoice again and again and again that Christ is, is proclaimed, the true Christ of the Bible. Paul's testimony of his joy was intended to motivate the the Philippians. It's intended to, to motivate them. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Now, Paul is not kind of patting himself on the back. He's not being sanctimonious or smug. Well, you know what makes me happy? It's not pizza. It's not seeing a Spider-Man movie. It's people hearing about Jesus. And he's, he's not just trying to make people feel bad. But he does expect this joy in the proclamation of Christ to be normative, to be normal, to be how we all live. See, Paul's personal desires, and he had other desires. He enjoyed pleasure. He enjoyed comfort. He enjoyed people appreciating him. He he enjoyed managing things well and having a sense of control. Those are natural human desires. But they were ordered under a greater desire. And that greater desire was to see Christ glorified. His ruling desire, the ruling principle of his life, was the glory of Christ. The seat of his emotions was the throne of Christ. And the more applause Christ got, the more joy Paul had. I don't know if you've ever experienced kind of living in a different in a different city and seeing a jersey for the team that you're rooting for. You know, when, when I see someone wearing a Seahawks jersey, I hope, that, I hope that's okay to say here. When I see someone wearing a, a Seahawks jersey, I, I, I feel like I've got something in common with this person. They're rooting for the Seahawks too. 
It's just, it's, just, it's just a smidgen of awareness and a little bit of joy. I just bring that up as, as a very, 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 very small picture. There's, 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 there's a sense of we're, we're, we're rooting for the same team. Okay, how much greater, and, and it's even not a f- fair comparison, right? It, it, is ex, it is exponentially greater the joy we should have when one of our brothers or sisters proclaims Christ. How thrilling. You root for Jesus too? You're on his team? You're exalting the same Christ? This is thrilling. I rejoice because you're proclaiming him. Paul is living out in this passage just a, a, a portion of what it means to die to ourselves. Paul, what, what, what's important to Paul isn't others' impression of him. In, in a sense, he says, what then? What does it matter what people think of me? What does it matter if they're trying to stir up trouble for me? See, Paul's will has been submitted to his Father's will, to God the Father's will. Life is no longer about him. He's sold out for something bigger and, and greater. His life is about Christ. He rejoices because Christ is proclaimed. So we start off by asking, where do you look when you're looking for joy? So what if you stirred yourself up as you kind of head home and you're maybe discouraged? Or you're discouraged how the day is gone with the kids? And you think about where Christ is proclaimed. Was Christ proclaimed in the Czech Republic? Yeah, every day you had reason to rejoice if you were following this on Facebook, seeing picture after picture of Christ being, being proclaimed. Was Christ proclaimed at the Roots Retreat this weekend? You have reason to rejoice. Was Christ proclaimed in our homes as the kids of Cornerstone Bible Church heard the gospel again and again and again? Christ was proclaimed. We have reason to rejoice. The kingdom is advancing. The kingdom is advancing in Malaysia this morning. The kingdom is advancing at the Glen Oaks Conference Center right now. Christ's kingdom is unstoppable. Eternal worshipers are being gathered around the throne. So what if we made our ruling desire to see Christ proclaimed, whether in pretense or truth, Paul says. Of course, he would much rather them have good motives and not try to you know, kind of stir up some kind of resentment in Paul while this preaching is going on. But what, where he's focusing and where his joy is, is that Christ is being proclaimed. And even in their false motives, even as they try to stir up distress, even as they're, 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 they're trying to bother him, he still rejoices with their, and it doesn't seem like they would do this, but their dear, with their daring, fearless proclamation of Christ. So let me ask you, would you be sad? Would you be unsettled if you found out that yesterday in America... Christ wasn't proclaimed at all. Would, would, it, would it be disturbing to you? Would it ruffle your feathers? Would it make you jealous for Christ's glory? It's not fitting. He deserves to be proclaimed. His kingdom has to keep advancing. What would you do about it if you found that out? Would you go after church and find someone? 
Would you say, today can't be like tomorrow. Monday can't be like that. Tuesday can't be like that. Christ has to be proclaimed. He's, he's worthy of being worshipped. Or, or are you okay? Just people having a skewed vision of Christ as this kind of impotent, pluralistic, postmodern, good teacher, bunch of morals. Are you okay with that? Or, or do you have to see him proclaimed? See, when we don't rejoice in the proclamation of Christ, we're missing out. We're drifting. We're, we've lost the plot. We're just, we're, we're just going along for the ride. The glory of Christ is in the proclamation of Christ. So how does Christ receive glory when he's proclaimed? Why should we be jealous for this? Christ receives glory in the truth of what's said. He receives glory when you tell about him, when you tell that he is sufficient to save and that nothing else is needed to save than faith in Jesus Christ. He is glorified when you proclaim his deity. He is glorified when you proclaim his resurrection, when you proclaim his supremacy, when you proclaim the truth about him. The glorification of Christ is through doctrine, not despite doctrine. When you proclaim what's true about him, that's how he's glorified. But he's also glorified in the way that we proclaim him. He's glorified when we proclaim him with boldness, when we do that with no shame because of our allegiance to the king of the universe who is in charge right now. He is glorified when we proclaim him, when we do that obediently, when we submit to him as Lord and say, yes, Lord, I'm willing to speak. He's glorified when we do that prayerfully, when we beg him and say, Lord, please give me opportunity today that I can proclaim him. He's glorified when we do that with humility and gentleness as we proclaim him to those who are sold as slaves to sin, who are blinded by the God of this world. He's glorified when we do that out of love for others as we know that they're our neighbors and that we were just like them. He's glorified when we proclaim him out of a joyful appreciation of him because we're so thankful. Because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So we've got to tell others about him. Christ receives glory also, really, and the Bible talks about this. There's, there, there's a certain simplicity to the gospel. Paul even talks about it almost as a foolishness. He talks about his foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Christ is glorified through the foolishness of this gospel. This gospel, this good news of a crucified, of an executed, of a publicly shamed Savior who's resurrected. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24 fleshes that out. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. They want miracles. Greeks search for wisdom. They're not satisfied with the wisdom of the gospel. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what the gospel is, right? And that's amazing. In this, in this message, the power of God is revealed and the wisdom of God is revealed as the Son of God is, is proclaimed. Christ receives glory through the reception to what's said. 
And we know as we proclaim Christ that the reception is not always positive. But listen to what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 16. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Wherever we proclaim Christ, it smells great. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from, from life to life. It's a beautiful smell, but not everyone gets it. To, to some, it's a sentence of death. To others, it is the good news of life. But it is a beautiful smell wherever we go. You know, we stop proclaiming Christ because we don't see anyone getting saved, but it's not about us. It's not even completely about the person we're talking to. Do we want them saved? Yes. Are we eager for that? But it's about Christ's glory. It's about him being proclaimed. So we have to keep going with it. We can't stop. When Christ is proclaimed, he receives glory. When Christ is proclaimed, he receives glory. So let us rejoice in it. So stir up some good, positive emotions by remembering today Christ is proclaimed. And tomorrow, Christ will be proclaimed. And around the world, Christ is being proclaimed. In other churches here in Orange County, this morning, Christ is being proclaimed. In our homes, Christ is being proclaimed. This is good news. That's what got Paul going. It brought him joy. Christ is is proclaimed, so he rejoices. And in this I rejoice. But he also says, yes, and I will rejoice. So in the midst of hardship, we need to rejoice in the proclamation of Christ. We also need to, and this brings us to our second answer for that first question, where to rejoice in the midst of hardship. We also need to rejoice in the certainty of salvation. In the certainty of salvation. Rejoice in the certainty of salvation. Verse 19 says, for our, okay, so I'll, I'll pick up the second half of 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. I'm going to keep rejoicing, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, the translation of that Greek word there, uh, it's, translated, it's translated as deliverance. It sounds like Paul's rejoicing because he's going to get out of prison. Now, it's true that Paul is fairly confident he's going to be released. In Philippians 2.24, it says, And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. Paul is expecting to be released from, 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 from prison. He's very hopeful about that. But I don't think that that's what this verse means here. Deliverance is probably not the best trans- translation of this Greek word, word so, 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 tyrion. Paul's joy in general, wasn't tied to his circumstances, right? So for him to have joy in his deliverance is not really kind of typical Paul. Uh, and we already learned, we, 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 we already read how he learned to be content in all circumstances from Philippians 4, 11 to 13. It's strange to hear Paul say, and just imagine this, I rejoice that Christ is proclaimed and I will rejoice because I'm going to get out of prison. Like, that doesn't really match up with what we know from Paul. Philippians 3.10, Paul expresses his desire that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. For Paul, suffering was inseparable from knowing Christ. It wasn't something to be gotten out of. Uh, 
Paul was going to faithfully follow God no matter where he was. So he's not going to rejoice in the proclamation of Christ and that I get out of prison. In fact, in just a few verses in Philippians 1.29, Paul's going to challenge the Philippians regarding their view of suffering. He says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. But I'm getting out of prison. No. It's been granted to suffer. I mean, I'm looking forward to studying that verse more because it needs to do work in my heart. It's been granted to suffer for his sake. Suffering was a gift. It was something that was granted. It was a privilege, not something to be gotten out of. Instead, it is better translated, that word deliverance is better translated as salvation. And really, I think all the commentaries take this way. Instead, uh, or, or at least all that I looked at, it was, it was a bunch. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my salvation. I rejoice because this will turn out for my salvation. And that's why we need to rejoice in the certainty of our salvation. Paul is quoting from the Greek text here of Job thirteen sixteen, which says, This also will be my salvation, for a godless man may not come before his presence. Job's friends had told Job that he was suffering because of his sin. Perhaps that wasn't unlike what some of the brothers who were preaching Christ out of envy and strife were thinking about Paul. He's in prison because he deserves to be. But Job's confidence was that he would be vindicated. We see that in Job 13, verses 13 to 19. Just jot that down. You can look at it later. Not that he would be vindicated as sinless, but that his sin wasn't the cause of his suffering. Job was eager to plead his case before God. He was confident in facing God. And Paul was looking forward to his vindication before God as well. Paul rejoices as he looks away from the now and looks towards the future. He knows where his life is going. And it's summed up in one word, salvation. Now, we must often talk about salvation as something that happens in the past. We, 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 we might ask people, well, when were you saved? Or what's the testimony of you getting saved? And that's biblical. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace were you saved. There's an aspect of salvation that is past tense. But in Paul's writings, salvation is also future. It's something that's guaranteed, but is unfinished. It's something that we're still waiting to be completed. So Romans 5, 9 and 10 is a good example of this. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved, we shall be saved, future, from the wrath of God through him. He's looking forward to this, verse 10 of Romans 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, we're already reconciled, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Again, it's future. Because Christ lives, we're going to live too. We're looking forward to that eternal certainty of salvation that we haven't received yet. Romans 13, 11. Do this, knowing the time that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. Salvation is coming. The, the, the final, completed salvation is on its way. It's near. Guess what? It's nearer now. And in an hour, it'll be even nearer. It's coming. The, the, the finished work is going to be received. Now, there are some aspects of salvation that we are still waiting for. We are still waiting to forever be with Christ. We are still waiting to be transformed, to be like him. 
there's this aspect that, and Romans 8 talks about this, that in the flesh now we are groaning. We are waiting to be conformed to the image of his son. Paul speaks of the reality of this coming salvation in Philippians 3, verses 20 to 21. He talks about how our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And that's just some, some great verses there. We're eagerly waiting a Savior who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. We'll be made like Christ. And how do we know that God's going to do this? By the exertion of Christ's power that subjects everything to himself. We know that he's already reigning over everything. That all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And then he's going to come back and he's going to make us to be like him. Since the glory of Christ was his goal, Paul naturally longed for the completion of salvation. Now, there's many reasons why we should rejoice in the completion of our salvation. There's no more pain or sickness. Good, right? There's no more sadness and no more depression. There's no more sin. I don't know if you could argue with the greatest star. Paul is later going to talk in the next passage about being with Christ. But then there's also, he's already talked in Philippians 3, verse 20 21, about being like Christ. Being with Christ and being like Christ. When we become like Christ, we reflect God's glory back to him. We reflect Christ's glory back on himself. Paul in heaven, he couldn't wait for this salvation that was coming. When he is, becomes really one more perfect piece in this eternal puzzle of God's glory. As he's perfected and fit in. And, he, and really, that's what we're all waiting for, right? to be another piece in that puzzle, perfectly reflecting Christ's glory back to himself for eternity. He couldn't wait to be one more unbroken mirror, reflecting, reflecting the glory of Christ back to himself. Currently, we are mirrors, right? We do show Christ now, but our mirrors are kind of smudged, right? They're, they're smudged. Some of them are kind of broken. You know, you don't see the image of Christ in us as we will yet, but we know that we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We're becoming like mirrors that better and better reflect Christ until finally in heaven we're all mirrors that reflect him perfectly, reflecting that light of Christ back unto himself, displaying him perfectly. That's what Paul was rejoicing in, in the completion of salvation. He says, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance, for my salvation. I know where this is going, and I can't wait to be there. Are you rejoicing in the completion of your salvation, in the completion of salvation that's coming when you will be like Jesus Christ? See, it's not just about escaping from difficulty here or escaping from suffering it's seeing Christ glorified as he deserves to be, bringing him the glory that he deserves. And let that be what propels you to meditate on getting to heaven, on being in heaven, and that our salvation is completed. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know this will turn out for my salvation. I can't wait to be there. Now, Paul, later here, and he's going to answer a Another question, or at least we're going to phrase the question, but it's what he explains next. It's why he's so confident. 
So the question is, how can you be certain that your salvation is coming? So if we're supposed to be rejoicing in our future salvation, it really leads us to a, a good question. How can you be certain that your salvation is coming? How can you be certain that your salvation is coming? And that's the second question there. How can you be certain that your salvation is coming? It's difficult to rejoice in what you're not certain about, especially in the midst of persecution. How do you know that you won't fold? How do you, you know you won't crumple before the finish line? How do you know, like what Paul says here in, in Philippians 1.6, that God who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion? How do you know that promise applies to you? How do you know that you're going to make it? Why can you rejoice in your salvation? How can you be certain of it? Where does this confidence that Paul has come from? Now, there are lots of excellent Theological answers to that question, which Paul doesn't really bring up. He goes a different way here. There's some really good theological answers to how you know you're going to miss, uh, how you're going to, not miss. There's some good theological answers for that one too. But how you know you're going to make the finish line. Like John 10, verses 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is Jesus speaking. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. All of those that Christ saves are going to stay saved. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 talks about the Spirit's work in keeping us saved. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Those are awesome answers. Being in Christ's hand, really Christ himself talks about the Father and I are one. He bases his, his deity and the very nature of the Trinity, the sealing of the Spirit. There's lots of great reasons to argue why those who are saved will always be saved. But that's not what Paul says here, though. Okay? So how does he answer this uh, a question about how he's certain he's, he's going to make it? How he's certain, not that he's going to be delivered from prison, but that he's going to get this salvation he's longing for? And the first answer is through help given by God now. Through help given by God now. Paul explains in verse 19 how he's going to persevere, how God is going to preserve him now until that future salvation. How? Philippians 1.19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. How? Not just because Jesus has me in his hand, although that's true, or that I'm sealed with the Spirit, but through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's pretty wild, right? Through your prayers and the Spirit and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So there's two parts there, through the Philippians' prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul often asked the saints to pray for him. Listen to, uh, 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 to requests he made during the same imprisonment. Ephesians 6, 19 to 20. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that, I, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well 
that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I, am, which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear as the way I ought to speak. He was continually uh, asking the saints to be praying for him. Now, part of God's answers to those prayers is the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, that could either mean the giving of the Spirit, the providing of the Spirit, or the support of the Spirit, and the help of the Spirit. And, and, and I think it's more of the, the second, the, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't going to reach the finish line on his own, which is an incredible truth here. We don't reach the finish line on our own. Now, I think we're comfortable with a second half. We need the help of, help of God's Spirit. But what about that first half? Through your prayers. Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Both were means that God would use to preserve Paul through his trials. And both are means that God will use to preserve you through your trials so that you, will, so that you can rejoice in the certainty of your salvation. God uses your prayers for one another to preserve them so that they continue in the faith, so that they persevere and press on. Prayers are the pipes through which God brings his grace to his people. Our prayers turn on the faucet of supernatural, spirit-given support. If we think of the grace of God flowing from him to us, prayers are the conduits that God uses. Do you need help to stay faithful? Yes. And your prayers for one another, your prayers for me, is how that happens. So have you been praying for the preservation of one another? Have you been praying that each one of us would continue in the faith? That we would make it to the finish line? Paul's perseverance was an answer to the saints' prayers and dependency on uh, and dependency upon the Spirit. It says, depending upon the help of the Spirit. He says, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He couldn't do this on his own. Paul's confidence, the certainty of his salvation, the reason why he was going to make it, he didn't just look past tense and say, I had a really great Acts 9 experience. It was amazing. I saw this light from heaven. I was totally saved. I prayed a prayer. I was really saved then but I've kind of drifted since, right? He understands it's going to be through the help of the Spirit. I need God's indwelling Spirit if I'm going to rejoice in the certainty of my salvation. It is He who continues me. I need to depend on Him so that I can continue. Paul rejoiced in his coming salvation because the Lord was giving help now through the prayers of the saints and through the support of the Spirit. But there's another answer here. It is also through the pattern of his own Christ-exalting life. It was through that God-given help, but it was also through the pattern of a Christ-exalting life. So his certainty of salvation was tied, I'm going to say as cautiously, to his performance. I know that's kind of shaky grounds there, right? But we're talking about how did he have the certainty. Yes, and I will rejoice because I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. How? First part, through divine help, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And then, according to, on the grounds of, 
based on my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. See, Paul wasn't just holding on for salvation to come. This wasn't just a last-ditch effort to cross the finish line. He cared about the way he, 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 he crossed it. Uh, so, some of you may, may have seen in the, in, in the recent, in the recent, in the most recent uh, Olympics, excuse me, how, how American uh, Alison Felix, how she had this opportunity to win the 400-meter race. The gold was within her sights. So she comes off the uh, final turn, and she's chasing down uh, Shawnee Miller, appears destined to finish the uh, finish line first, though, right? And then this is a, a quote. But she was destined to finish the, it looked like she was going to win on her feet, like a normal person. Now, this isn't a quote from, from Alison Felix, Felix, but from Fox Sports. But she looked like she was going to win by running the race on her feet like a normal person. And then Miller, whether in a fit of brilliance, madness, or a combination of the two, decided to leap over the finish line, and then it says, like a Bahamian superwoman mixed with Pete Rose, timing it perfectly, the dive worked. And I don't know if you guys remember seeing that. Well, I mean, of course we wrote, we wrote for Allison Felix. We know her dad, Paul. Uh, so I think some of us are related. You know? So you're, you're like, oh, this is great. And then all of a sudden this person just kind of dives across. And it was real ugly. She won. But is that how we want to finish our Christian race? Just kind of in this like, kind of like, whoa, I made it. No. Paul was concerned about, about the manner he made it. He says, according to my earnest expectation and, and hope. His head was outstretched. His eyes were straight ahead. He had this eager expectation, this confidence. I'm going to make salvation. I'm going to get to salvation. I can't wait for it. But he does, he is concerned about how he gets there. He was confident of performing well. I will not be put to shame in anything, he says. According to my eager, earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. See, now, Paul wasn't concerned whether he was shamed by the world. He, he, he was used to mockery, to persecution, to mistreatment, to being maligned for his confession of Christ. What mattered wasn't being ashamed before God. What mattered was not failing in the commission that God had given him. For not being disgraced or disqualified before God. Acts 20, verse 24 talks about this. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, 27 talks about this. Do you not know that those, who run in a, uh, that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win on your feet. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul was concerned about reaching the finish line without shame. Are you living today in a way that you will not be put to shame before God? Now, the answer here isn't, you're asking the wrong question. I know I'm justified. I know I've been adopted. I know, I'm, I know I'm forgiven. And that's true. We can rejoice because of God's past work. But that past work is going to have current results. 
Paul's joyful expectation of salvation in this verse isn't the finished work of Christ, but it's what the finished work of Christ is accomplishing in his life. It's about the certainty he has because union with Christ is changing him. During his next imprisonment, so kind of some, some spoilers there, Paul gets out of prison. Uh, he'll get to be imprisoned again. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, in his next imprisonment, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see that same confident, joyful expectation. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. I've done well. Are you living in a way that you will not be put to shame when Christ returns? Are you disciplining your body so that you won't be disqualified? Or have you been lax in purpose? Laid back in self-control. Not being diligent. Not putting forth effort. Not caring about the way you cross the finish line. See, God's plan for the Christian life is not that we get to heaven saying, I should have been so much more. I should have been more faithful. I don't hear Paul saying that. We can live our Christian lives in a different way. Are we still going to sin? Yes, but we can fulfill the purpose to which he's called us. Christians are missing out so much joy because we're not making every effort. Because they aren't embracing the commission that God's given them. Are you a faithful steward of the ministry that God has given to you? To you as an individual? Are you a faithful steward of the ministry that God has given you to one another? To your family? To a lost world? Are you faithfully proclaiming Christ in every venue in your life? Are you praying for opportunities to do so? Have you been stewarding the gifts that God has given you? Is he going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? That Matthew 25 parable is, is, is terrifying. That's, that's the one answer there. It's well done, good and faithful servant. Those who don't steward the gifts that they're given, that don't use their talents well, who hide because they don't trust their master, who are ashamed at his coming, are called wicked, lazy slaves. They're cast into outer darkness. This is how you're saved. What Paul's talking about, this is not how you become saved, but this is how you are saved confident of your coming salvation, how you are searching on the salvation. In a sense, I'm even going to say how you stay saved. You run with effort. You push on. You care about the style, in a sense. The manner that you run. So that Paul can say, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. Boldness includes the idea of openness here. The idea of openness is speaking the truth frankly and plainly, not pulling any punches. And he says, even now as always, he's not saying that he's sinless, but that he was sold out. He wasn't coming to the potential end and trying to live for Christ. and, and, And I don't know if you've ever thought or kind of like daydreamed a little bit, like what if I found out I had cancer? Oh, I would really want to use the cancer for God's glory. I, I, I would really want to be bold. I would really want to speak up. I would want to tell everyone, if my time were limited, how amazing Christ is. Have you ever daydreamed like that? 
how, would you, how you'd steward those last months. And that's awesome. But don't wait until the end. Paul says, even now, as always. It was his consistent, now as always, purpose was the exaltation of Christ, for Christ to be honored, for Christ to be made great. Making Christ great, exalting him, putting the spotlight on him, lifting the curtain so that everyone sees him is not a PR stunt. He deserves this. Uh, some of us have, have watched as, uh, as LeVar Ball uh, worked really hard to get his son Lonzo on the Lakers, right? Oh, no, wait. Yeah, right, okay, yeah, yes. So LeVar Ball, and you guys have seen some of the stunts he's done, even going on worldwide wrestling. He worked so hard promoting his son so that his son would make the Lakers. What effort was there to put the spotlight on his son? That's nothing compared to putting the spotlight on Christ, right? I don't know if he's doing it for money or for fame, love of self. I don't know what his motives are there, but what should we do to put the spotlight on Christ? And Christ deserves it. And that's what Paul's talking about here, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And here's another reason why I think he, uh, it's not so much he's confident of his deliverance here, but of his salvation. It doesn't matter if I live or die. It's all about Christ. It's all about exalting him. It's all about making him great. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This is how Paul lived. This is the pattern of his life. It was all about making Christ great, but exalting him. And he said that he, could fulf he fulfilled this purpose without shame. There was no fear of disgrace. So how are you living? Are you certain of salvation? Are you certain of salvation? Yes, our hope is in Christ alone. Our hope is in the finished work of Christ. We cling to that with our last dying breath. But in this verse, he says, this is going to turn out to my salvation because I'm not ashamed. I'm confident in that because you're praying for me. Because I've been exalting Christ in my body. Because of the way that I'm living, I know where this is going. Can you say that about the way that you're living and the way that you're fulfilling the roles that God has given you? Whether as husband or as father, as wife, as mother, as sister or brother in Christ, as worker, can you say, no, I am all in. And as Paul is going to say next, we'll cover that next time we're in Philippians, for me to live is Christ. These are reasons to rejoice. Is that why you're rejoicing? Are you rejoicing because Christ is proclaimed? Does that thrill you? Are you rejoicing because you are certain of your salvation? And not because you can look back at a testimony. Not, back, not because you can look back at a time where you remember getting saved, but because you can look now and say, the saints are praying for me. I am preserving through their prayers. God is giving me help, and I'm depending upon that help, and I'm not ashamed, and I'm living to exalt Christ, and I'm living in boldness because it's all about him. And I can't wait to be with him and to be made like him and to bring him even more glory forever in heaven. That is reason to rejoice. 
Are there lots of other reasons given in Scripture? Yes, but those are good, solid reasons to rejoice. Paul wanted to stir the Philippians to joy with those. It's how he rejoiced, and by God's grace, it's how we will rejoice. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word, and we're humbled by it. We're challenged by it. Uh, as we see Paul rejoicing in circumstances that we wouldn't, Lord. We, we struggle rejoicing when it's hot or when we're sick, Lord. We struggle rejoicing when our emotions are, are, are down. We, restrug, we struggle rejoicing when people are gossiping about us. There's so many reasons why we struggle to rejoice. And I'm not making light of that. This, this, this is a fallen world and things don't work as they ought always. And yet, Lord, we see Paul here in prison rejoicing because your son is being proclaimed and rejoicing because he is going to have the salvation that you've promised him. So, Lord, I pray that we would have that same kind of joy, that we would rejoice in our coming salvation, that we would be depending upon the prayers of one another and the help given of your spirit, that we would be concerned and even rejoicing because of the manner that we're running that we wouldn't be able to just kind of dread your return or wish we'd done better or stewarded our life better, Lord, but that we would say that we lived all out for your glory. I pray, Father, that we would do that in, in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and our relationships with one another, that Christ would be exalted with all boldness, that we would all be able to say, for me to live as Christ, Lord, we cannot do this on your own, but your spirit gives help. So please, Lord, give us the resolve to obey. Give us the resolve to exalt Christ in our bodies, whether through life or by death. In Jesus' name, amen.